join me in your Bibles, the, uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 14. Matthew, chapter 14. It's good to see everybody this morning. We're uh, glad that you're all here. We're going to do a, a, a sermon this morning, and then next week we'll start through the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. So I pray that you're even maybe start reading through it this week, just a four, uh, four chapters and very, it's a very easy read because it's, it's kind of an exciting adventure um, kind of story, uh, narrative. You, you know, you read it, you probably heard it when you were children. And so we're going to go through the book and just try to unfold some of the truths that are there um, that can help us as we walk through these challenges in life, the different challenges that we have. And it's interesting as we uh, look this morning, and the title of this morning's message, if you're taking notes, and if you didn't receive a sheet, if you'd like one, just raise your hand. There are some hands at handouts that are available with the, all the uh, outline on there for, for your use. So if you'd like an outline, just raise your hand. We've got somebody um, watching for anybody that would like one. Um, this week we're going to talk about Jesus in the storm, and we've, uh, next week we'll look at Jonah, and obviously there's another situation where you have a storm, and we'll look at some different truths that come from that. But this week specifically we're going to look at Jesus as he uh, presents himself in three of the four Gospels as he walks on the water, and this is one of those miracles that most of us are familiar with. One of the um, narratives that presents this presents Peter walking on the water as well. The other two uh, do not make mention of Peter's part of the, of the journey, but just Jesus' portion of it. And so um, Peter walks on the water, Jesus walks on the water, and the other two uh, passages of Scripture, and it's mentioned again in three passages as well. If you're uh, you can see on your outline there, it's Matthew chapter 14 is where we're at, Mark 6, and, and John 6 are the three places where this um, portion of Scripture, this narrative is unfolded for us. And as we consider this, we're going to consider a question this morning that maybe you've asked or maybe you've had somebody ask you before, and that is the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And that's uh, one of the, um, really one of the ways in which the world has challenged the existence of God, uh, the, the reality or the challenge or the question that comes up if God is all powerful and God is all good or all loving or all kind, then why do bad things happen? And maybe you've asked that question before and maybe you've had somebody ask you that question and it, it's a logical question. If God is in control of everything and he is always good in everything that he does, then why do bad things happen? Why do we, why do we live in a world where there is um, pandemics? Why do we live in a world where there is murder or there is wars? Why do we live in a world like that if God is all powerful and God is always good? And so it's a, it's a logical question that is, is asked by lost people. And for many people who are in the church... Um, they begin to, in their own mind, challenge the existence of God, or they challenge the, in their mind, they challenge the power of God. Maybe God is not all-powerful. Maybe he doesn't have the ability to stop these problems or these difficulties or these bad things from happening. Or maybe God is all-powerful, but he's not all-good. And so maybe he does bad things. Maybe God does bad things and, and he is so super powerful and so he can do whatever he wants, but he's just not always good. And so the challenge is, is to be able to come, be able to look at the word of God, look at scripture and look at God and his character as he presents himself in scripture and, and still come out at the end of the day with a belief that God is always, pow is always good and he's all powerful. And to be able to, to uh, discern scriptures in such a way that God never comes out at the end of the day as the bad guy or as a weak guy. Always coming out as that he's done what's right and he has done what is good. And so in this narrative that we're going to read this morning, and we'll read it in Matthew 14, but we'll also refer to a few of the details in the other um, portions to give us some light to it. It's interesting, when you study the Gospels, oftentimes you'll see three and sometimes four different um, reflections, if you will, on the same story. 
And, they, and they're different. And you ask yourself the question, hey, you know, why are they different? How can they be different? And the Lord is, is oftentimes just exposing us to different, different details about the story that are purposeful within the purpose of that gospel. So they're not seeing different events. They're seeing the same event. They're referring to or reflecting on the same event, but they're reflecting on it in such a way as it fits into the narrative that's being presented in other words, every book of the Bible has this overriding theme, right? So two people might look at an elephant from two different sides and describe, this, describe the elephant, and then they might describe the elephant, and they might think, there's no way that that's the same elephant. You know, they might be looking at, one might be looking at the front of the elephant, one might be looking at the back of the elephant, and you, you wouldn't probably conclude that they're talking about the same animal. Same thing happens in Scripture. When, they, when you read the Gospels, oftentimes there's this over overarching theme, and if you don't understand the overarching theme, you'll miss the reason that there are uh, details that are differing from um, each other. So what we're going to see in this narrative this morning is, is that God allows bad things to happen to good people, and not only does God allow bad things to happen to good people, but God has a purpose for those bad things, and they're not, they're not accidental, nor are they purposeless. And, and we're going to see this in this storm event where Jesus Christ is going to walk on the water and he's going to perform a miracle in front of his disciples for a very, very specific purpose. And what I want us to know is, is that the purpose of this storm and the outcome of this storm is very, very, what we would call it's a universal truth. It's like every storm has the same purpose. Every storm has the same purpose. And so we can get it in one of the stories, we can understand all of the storms in the Bible, and then we can also understand all of the storms that we go through in, in our own lives. We can understand the things that we go through. A, a, a scripture reference to give you, shine some light on this, is in Genesis chapter number 50 and verse number 20, speaking of Joseph and his brothers and all of the things that Joseph went through, um, all of the, you know, they lied about Joseph, they they hurt Joseph. They sold Joseph into slavery. Joseph was uh, thrown into prison for, for things that he didn't do. All of these things happened, and all of these things we would call bad things. Right here, Joseph is in the Bible. He's a reflection of Christ, and, and really we would call Joseph a good man, but a lot of bad things happened to Joseph in Joseph's life. And here's what is said about him. He says, as for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant what you meant as evil, God meant it for good. In other words, the very events that Joseph went through, there was a negative purpose, which the brothers had, which was to hurt and harm Joseph, right? But there was also another purpose. And the event was the same, the actions were the same, but they had two purposes. The evil side was the devil, was the brothers trying to work out evil towards Joseph's life. The good side was is that God was working out something good in Joseph's life. The events were the same, though. And so he says, what they meant as evil, I meant as good. The events had two meanings. One meant evil, one meant good. And that's the way it is with evil. That's the way it is with bad things. They happen, and there's a side of them that wants to destroy you, and there's a side of them that wants to build you, wants to equip you and, and make you into the person that God wants you to be. He says at the end of that verse, and to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. In other words, God had a big plan for Joseph to feed Israel during a time of famine. Had all of the events that happened to Joseph that were negative not happened to Joseph, we have a whole different story at the end. And possibly thousands of Jewish people dying because there's no food for them. When we know that God doesn't work in such a way that he doesn't, that he, you know, we, we, could, we could think of the, all the variables, oh, if this didn't happen, this didn't happen, well, we can question that all we want, but it did happen. It happened by the sovereign work of God, but it included all of these negative things to get Joseph to the place where God wanted him to be, the same state with the disciples. These bad things that we read all throughout scriptures are also called several terms, if you're taking notes, they're called trials, tribulations, hardship, persecutions, sufferings, 
Now, these are other terms that are used in Scripture to refer to storms. When we see the idea of storms in, in the Scriptures, what, what's being referred to or reflected on is tribulation, trials, hardship, difficulty. And it can be manifesting, it can manifest itself in a number of different ways. The Scripture says a lot about suffering for Christians. Paul promises in Timothy, or Paul promises to Timothy, that all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. James commands that we count it all joy when we face various trials. Peter warns us not to be surprised when we face fiery trials. Jesus admonished us in the Gospels that they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He also says they have hated me, they will also hate you. And then he goes on to say, if you are my disciple, if, if you are a follower of me, why would they treat you any differently than they have treated me? And the admonition is, is that you, we as Christians are going to suffer. We're going to go through storms, we're going to go through difficulties. What we what we, how we respond to them and how we benefit from them is really, really, is really what matters. So in this historical narrative about Jesus in the storm, we're introduced to four things about Jesus and how he functions, how he functions, what is his role in your storm? I think everybody in here can probably think, stop, and think for a moment and think about some kind of a storm that you've gone through in the last year. We would say that the pandemic was a storm that we went through, not just as a, a, a Christ, Christians, but the whole world is going through the storm of the pandemic. And we would say that these, the uh, conversations about wars that are coming up, these are storms that are happening. These are stirrings, they're rumblings, they're thunder and lightning in a, in a world that is around us. And, and, and maybe your marriage has gone through some storms this year, or maybe you've gone through some financial storms. Maybe you've gone through some storms with your children. Um, we all probably can think of something in our life that has been a storm this year. We have teenagers in here, and teenagers go through storms as well as adults do. We all go through difficulties and we all go through challenges. What's important is that we go through those difficulties and, we ch and challenges with God's perspective of those difficulties and challenges and not the world's perspective of them. That we see them as being meant to mature us and make us the people that God wants us to be. We not see them as a means to destroy us. There is that purpose there. But that's not God's purpose for them. And we not allow Satan to accomplish his purpose or evil brothers to accomplish their purpose in destroying us. We allow God to accomplish his purpose. So if you'll join me in Matthew 14, just a little bit of a background before we get rolling here. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. One of, the, one of the greatest miracles in the word of God is this event Jesus feeds five, uh, five the, the number is really probably more like fifteen to 20,000 people. Uh, the Bible says 5,000 men, not including the women and children. So it's likely that this was fifteen to 20,000 people that the Lord feeds with five loaves and two fishes. Even if it was only 5,000 people with five loaves and right, it's still a miracle. But there's a purpose for this story that Jesus Christ, this... this um, narrative that Jesus Christ tells them about feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And it's interesting because the disciples don't understand this purpose. The disciples don't get what Jesus is trying to teach with this feeding of these 5,000 people. I mean, they just think, they actually, they go over the sea and they get to the other side and they're like, they forgot to bring bread. And they forget totally that Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And they don't understand that there's a deeper message that's being, being presented through uh, Jesus' miracle that demanded a storm for the disciples to understand the message. It required a storm. The disciples weren't going to get it unless there was a storm. And so, so Jesus feeds these 5,000 people, or 20,000 and then, after he's done feeding them, he gets to verse number 22. And the Bible says, let's read along with me if you would. He says, immediately, 
Okay, and this is a word that's used four times in this text. It's very important that we understand that this is immediately, like right away after this event has happened. The other text tells us before Jesus even dismissed the people. So the miracle has just happened of feeding 20,000 people, and immediately after feeding 20,000 people, Jesus tells his disciples, go get in the boat and go to the other side. Immediately after it happened. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for Jesus doing it the way that he does it. The Bible says immediately he, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side when he dis, while he dismissed the crowd, or before he dismissed the crowd, as the other narratives teach us. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up into the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone, But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. This would have been about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning, right before the sun rises. And the the Lord is going to go out to the disciples on the sea at, at this point in time after the, uh, they've, they've obviously toiled most of the night um, in this uh, storm to try to get to the other side. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took him on and took hold of him and said, saying to him, oh, you have little faith. Why do you doubt? When they had gotten into the boat, the wind ceased Another one of the, I believe it's the Gospel of John, says that they were immediately to the shore. They, immediately the storm stopped. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. In the book of John, you have a different following story. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't go on the same way he does here in the book of Matthew. But in the book of John, he goes on to describe what the feeding of the 5,000 meant, what the purpose of that miracle was, what the lesson was that they were being taught. And we'll look at that here in, in just a few moments, but I want you to see four things from this passage of Scripture in regards to storms that we face in our life. Difficulties, challenges, heartache, whatever might be the case that you have faced some storms, I want you to be able to see Jesus in it. I want you to be able to see Jesus in it. So we start, number one, with the fact that Jesus pushes them into the storm. Jesus pushes them. If you're taking notes, that's, that's thought number one. In each one of the narratives, the Bible says that Jesus made them go into the storm. He forces them into the storm. The word is not, a, is not a, a, an ambiguous word. It's a very, very um, forceful word. It's used in the Greek here to describe a, a necessitating of something. He is commanding them to go get in the boat and go to the other side. And it wasn't beyond Jesus, his knowledge, to know that they were going to face a storm. He wasn't just sending them into the boat to go to the other side. He was actually sending them into a storm. So immediately following the disciples, watching him feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes, he forcibly immediately and forcibly pushes them into the storm. So what we know immediately is that Jesus Christ has a purpose. His, his urgency in, how, in, in the timeliness of his forcing them into the storm and, and the tone of his voice as he pushes them into the storm or pushes them into the boat shows us that he has a, he has a purpose for what he's doing. He's not casual about what he's doing. He's not, he's not, he's not, um, he's, 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 he's acting with, with focus and he's pushing them. He's, he's commanding them. He's forcing them into the boat to go to the other side, to go into the storm. 
And he does this again immediately after he has fed 5,000, not letting them remain there, not letting them remain there after the miracle has performed, but telling them immediately to go over before he dismisses them. Let me give you another verse here that helps us understand this idea of his pushing them into the storm. Galatians 2 and verse number 14 says it this way, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? It's the same Greek word here, and we know, we know the story there in Galatians that they were trying to force, trying to make, in order to be a, a Christian, you had to follow certain Jewish rituals. The circumcision was the, the main one. And the, 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 the way the text reads is, why are you trying to force people to do that which is not commanded of them in the gospel? It's the same word that's used here when Jesus Christ is forcing that he, he made them get into the boat. He forces them into the boat. Now, as we understand the relationship of Jesus Christ with his disciples, they were, they were willing to, I mean, he was authoritative with them, and they respected that. And they did what he asked them to do. They got into the, to the boat, and they began to make this journey over to the other side. So Jesus pushes us into storms. Jesus pushes us into storms. It's not accidental. You don't stumble into it. You don't accidentally come upon it. It is, it is, God is, Jesus is pressing us into these storms. I know it's hard to understand. It's hard to comprehend. It's hard to see God doing that in our lives. And the reason we, do, we know that we don't acknowledge that God has pushed us into the storm is because our immediate reaction to storms is what? Our immediate reaction to storms is what? It's get out. It's figure a way out of the storm. And they're, they're, the, they're the same way. And they were going to row their way to shore, and they've been rowing all night, and it wasn't working, was it? And just like all of the other fixes that we try to put together when God pushes us into a storm. We don't, we don't realize that God has a purpose for the storm that demands we not get through it in our own abilities. It demands that we not get through it in our own abilities. If the disciples would have been able to row themselves to the other side through the storm, it would have actually undermined the purpose of God for sending them into the storm. Their abilities had to fail in order for God to show them what his purposes were in putting them into the storm. It had to fail. So God pushes us into storms, thought number one. Number two, or Jesus pushes them into storms. Thought number two is Jesus has a purpose for the storm. Jesus has a purpose for pushing them into the storm. And he tells us in the other two, actually in, in Mark and John, he tells us what his, purpose, what his purposes were. And again, we see the urgency and the intensity of Jesus Christ's pushing, and we must conclude that there's a purpose. There are reasons why the Lord wants us to go into the storm. Let me give you two of them. Number one is, the Bible tells us in Mark 6.52, that the disciples' hearts were hardened. For they did not understand, I'll read it to you, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. The disciples' hearts were hardened, and therefore the Lord sent them into the storm. You say, well, Pastor John, what does that mean? Their hearts were hardened. Well, this word in the Greek literally means to, be, to become dull, to become hard of hearing or, or not capable of seeing. They had become dull or they had become deafened to what God's purposes were and what God's plans were, and they had begun to want to, make, to bring about their own purposes and their own plans. 
Matter of fact, the Bible tells us in, in, the other, uh, in the book of John that they wanted to make Jesus king. They want to, at, at this point in time, they see this miracle-working God. He's capable of, of feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. They want to put him into the kingdom. They want to make him king. They want to set him up. They have plans now for God, for Jesus, to, to carry out their purposes and their plans. And may, may I submit to you that it's oftentimes as we're going through good things that we begin to infuse our plans on God. We become, we become blur, our vision becomes blurry as to God's plans for us because we have so many plans for God. The disciples became hardened in their heart. They became, they became blurred in their vision. They became deaf in their hearing. They were no longer being directed by God or Jesus, but now Jesus was being directed by them. They became the master and he became the servant. Their heart became hardened. They all, they all, I mean, you just imagine that you just put yourself in their shoes. I mean, here it is. Their, their master has just performed this great miracle. And just imagine in your mind how many things start to roll through your mind of, wow, look what we could do with this. My goodness, this could, we could, we could rule the world. That's the thought process that's going through the disciples' minds. And that's why Jesus doesn't let them stay there. That's why Jesus doesn't let them enjoy the celebration. That's why Jesus doesn't let them bask in the miracle. Jesus puts them immediately into the boat before he even sets the people free. He says, disciples, get in the boat. And the people are still figuring out what's going on. Because you can imagine that those people were going to try to make Jesus king, and the disciples were wrestling with wanting to make him king themselves. It's amazing how we get to that place where we become, we become hardened in our heart because we have so many plans for God that he can do for us. And it's all a result of his goodness. I mean, feeding 5,000 people or 20,000 people was God's goodness. It was his grace and his mercy being shared with all of those lost people. It's easy, though, to lose sight that fact that God has a purpose and God has a plan and God is accomplishing his will. In times of blessing and excitement, it is easy for our plans, let me say this, in times of blessing and excitement, it is easy for our plans to cause dullness in seeing and embracing God's plans. The second thing, not only did the disciples' hearts become hardened, but their heads become heavy. In other words, the disciples all of a sudden can't see clearly. They can't, they can't comprehend the fact that there's a spiritual lesson. He's fed 5,000 people with, with five loaves and two fishes, and all they can think about is five. How did somebody feed somebody? How did somebody feed this many people with five loaves and two fishes? In other words, all they could think about was the physical attributes or aspects of the miracle. Jesus did not feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes to let them understand or to help them understand that he was capable of feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes to show how satisfying he was. This is why in the end, after John talks about this same narrative in John 6, he says to them, I am the bread of life. They totally missed their passions, their pleasures, their desires had become a fog to the fact that what Jesus was saying was, I am better, I am good, I am sufficient, I am satisfying. What they saw is, is bread is satisfying. No, bread is not satisfying. Jesus is satisfying. They totally missed that. They, they became so head knowledge full. They became so smart in their own mind. They had such a great plan for this. And they saw all of these things unfolding and developing in their mind of what they could do. They missed the whole thing. Man, they're just thinking about their bellies now. Now. 
Their hearts were hardened, their heads were heavy. They thought in their minds, Jesus just fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. Bread is very satisfying, so Jesus can satisfy me with bread. Jesus was trying to teach them something totally different than what they were seeing and hearing. And these were his disciples. And you listen to me, I'll just be real honest with you this morning. I think we've missed it in many ways. I think we see Jesus the same exact way. We've got our own plans for him. We've got our plans laid out of what he could do to make us great. That's what the disciples were, were problem, that's what their problem was. We've got plans for how he can satisfy all of our pleasurable needs with things. It's not his purpose. So why does he send them into a storm? Why does he send us into storms? Because our heads are heavy and our hearts are hard. We have plans and pleasures We have plans and pleasures that have caused us to not see Jesus. Number three, Jesus' personality in the storm. Jesus reveals to us seven things about himself from this text, and I'm just going to give them to you fairly quickly. Seven things from the text about himself that they were able to see, listen to me, that they were only able to see because of the storm. Seven things about Jesus that they were only able to see because of the storm. You see, before the storm, he just fed 5,000. What did they do? They saw a kingdom that, that, that would make them great. They saw somebody who could feed their bellies, who could give them pleasures, who could do all of these things in a physical way. They saw all of that. Jesus puts them into the storm, and Jesus puts them into the storm for one reason, and for one reason alone, and he shows them seven things because Jesus wants them to see Jesus. That's it. Jesus puts us into storms because we don't see him. We've lost sight of him. We've lost sight of him in our plans, and we've lost sight of him in our pleasures. And so Jesus puts us into impossible situations and impossible circumstances so that we no longer look at our plans and our pleasures, but we now look at Jesus. Let's look at these seven things about Jesus' character in the midst of our storms. Number one, he was considerate of their suffering. The Bible says that Jesus Christ, after he had sent his disciples away and dismissed all of the people, that he goes up into the mountain by himself and he's praying. And there are several uh, possible reasons why Jesus Christ could be praying in this moment, but it is likely, as the, the narrative goes, that Jesus Christ, in the middle of his prayer, or in the midst of his prayer, he recognizes that the disciples have been toiling, toiling all night in this storm. Now, some would say that Jesus Christ was up high enough that he could look out and he could see that they were probably about three to four miles away. He could see them in the distance toiling. It's my opinion that Jesus Christ was praying for his disciples in this moment that he knew they were in the middle of the ocean toiling because he had planned it for them to be there. He had sent them into that storm. And he knows that they're suffering and he knows that they're, he knows that they're going through difficulty and they're going through heartache and they're going through pain. And what is the Lord doing? Well, the Lord is interceding for them. He's praying for them. He's praying that they'll have They'll have uh, discernment to understand what is the purpose of the storm. He's praying that they'll understand what the purpose of the bread and the, and the feeding of the 5,000 is. He's praying for them. He's interceding for them. And that's the way the Lord works with us. The Lord is interceding. He, yes, he allows us to go into difficulty. Yes, he even orchestrates difficulty for us. He places things in our path to cause us to grow and to help us become the people that he wants us to be. But, but he's not, he's not, he doesn't not, he, he feels what we're going through. <clears throat> he's concerned for us as we go through it. It doesn't mean that he doesn't put us in difficulty, but it does mean that he cares when he puts us into difficulty. 
You ever, you ever, you ever put, you ever put your own child or let your own child go through hard, to a hard, through a hard time? You knew that there was a lesson that they had to learn, and so you either allowed them to go through difficulty, or you even perhaps let them go through something where you could have intervened, but you just didn't. And then you prayed for them. God, help them to understand. Help them to get through this. Help them to grow and mature in it. That's the heart of Jesus in this moment. It's not a heart of anger or hatred towards his disciples. It's a heart of a teacher. It's a heart of somebody who cares and is, con- and is considerate of them as they go through their suffering. 1 Peter 5 and verse 7 says that we're to cast all of our cares upon him because he cares for us. You just know this, when you're going through suffering and you're going through difficulty and you're going through trials and tribulations, know that God hasn't forgotten about you. It's likely that he has a very, very specific plan for why you're in that moment, and he's just trying to teach you something. He's trying to perhaps mature you into the person that he wants you to be. He's considerate of their suffering, number one. Number two, he's concerned for their spiritual condition. He's concerned for their spiritual condition, Jesus was more concerned about their spiritual condition than he was about their earthly comfort. Jesus sent them into the storm because their spiritual condition wasn't what it ought to be. Jesus sent them into the storm because there was a spiritual lesson or a spiritual truth that they were not understanding, so he sent them into the storm for the, for the benefit of their spiritual over against the comfort of their physical. And it's often true that when God teaches us lessons, it's at the expense of our physical comforts, and it's for our spiritual maturing. And so that God, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians that our outer man is perishing daily, but our inner man is becoming stronger and stronger. And the way that it's written is is that they are intertwined together, that as your outer man is perishing, your inner man is becoming stronger. So it's because of the storm that the disciples are in that they're going to be able to understand spiritual things. It's because of the storm that they're going to be able to understand spiritual things. God has put them into the storm because he's concerned about their spiritual condition. And listen, God is more concerned about our spiritual condition than he is about our comfort. And thank God for that. Nobody wants to stand before God on Judgment Day and have having experienced all of the comforts of this life and then be cast into eternal damnation. True? So we want God to care for our spiritual condition more than our, than our physical comfort. The issue is, is are we willing to accept that the trials that we're going through are for our physical condition, our spiritual condition, and are going to have pain in regards to our physical condition? comforts? Are we we willing to see it from God's perspective? Because he's good, right? He is concerned for their spiritual condition. Without the storm, the disciples are confused and selfish, but in the storm, they are set free to be selfless. Number four. Number three, in regards to Jesus' personality, he was controlling, get this, he was controlling what was causing them pain. When Jesus Christ walks out on the water, what he is saying is, I'm in complete control of the situation. The very thing that was beating up against the boat, knocking the, knocking the wood here and there, the, the, the water is just pouring in because the wood is just scattered everywhere. The very thing that's causing all of this pain and heartache for the disciples, that's causing them to row harder than they've ever rowed and to work harder than they've ever worked before, the very thing that's causing all of this to happen, Jesus Christ walks on it. And he just says to his disciples, I'm incomplete. He, when he gets in the boat, we all know the story. Everything calms down. And in, in another storm, Jesus actually says, peace be still. And they're like, who, who is it that has power over, the, over, the, over nature? God does. And, and may I submit to you that his power over nature includes our physical, our nature, and the things that we go through physically? If he can calm the storm with the words of his mouth, he can calm any pandemic with the word of his mouth. True? 
I think of I think of Second Chronicles 14, if my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their lands. I tell you what we're doing, we're rowing as hard as we can to get to shore. Jesus has already given us the solution. Confess your sins and get on your face before God again, and I will heal this in, 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 with the word of my mouth. But no, we will row to shore. Right? Just like Jonah's going to do next week. They're going to row to shore until they realize that they ain't getting any closer. And then they're going to throw Jonah out. And it's funny, but it's not funny. Jesus was in complete control. He had complete power over the storm. The very thing that was bringing them pain was the very thing that Jesus could stop in a moment. Listen, Jesus wasn't going to stop the storm until they learned the lesson. This is from God's perspective. From man's perspective, it's totally different. From God's perspective, not so much. He is controlling with what causes the storm. Number four. He is cooperative in their distress. Mark 6 says it this way. As Jesus is walking on the water, he would have passed by them. In other words, Jesus was walking on the water, and he was just going to walk right past them. Right? Yeah, I love that, right? He was going to walk right past them. Do you know what Jesus was doing? Jesus was making himself available to the disciples. They could have just kept on rowing. They could have tried to get there themselves. Jesus didn't come in and change the situation. He made himself available to the situation, and he intervened on the situation when the disciples cried out to him. When the disciples recognized their desperate situation and cried out to Jesus, Jesus gets in the boat and everything is calm again. But Jesus' attitude when he's walking across this water right here, and he's walking across this right on top of the water with the boats over here, and there he is, Jesus' attitude is, I'm available to help you. He's there. I'm available to help you. You got to cry out. You got to want it. You got to desire it. You got to see it. You got to see that's your only option, your only hope. You can no longer be thinking about the bread. You can no longer be thinking about the kingdom. You got to want me and me alone. I'm here. I'm available. I'm walking across. I'm right over here. You can let me walk to the other side, and I will. And I'll let you row to the other side. Isn't that the way it is with a lot of us? We're in the deepest and darkest of situations. God has sent us there so that we will see him and see him alone. And there he is standing there holding out his hands to help us. And we're like, we got this. Do you know what he will do? He will walk right past Is that what we want? He made himself available in their distress. He will allow us to handle it ourselves if we want to, but he always wants us to know that he's available. Whatever you're going through right now, listen, Jesus is available. He's, avail he's not going to take a row and help you row to shore. It's going to be supernatural. It's going to be a miracle. He's not going to partner with you in the process. He's going to do the miracle. But he's not going to do the miracle until you see him alone. Because that's the whole purpose of the storm, is that the disciples would see Jesus above the kingdom and the bread. Let's go on. Number five. He was comforting toward their fears. The Bible says that when the 
disciples cry out. They see him as a ghost and they cry out and they're in fear. Uh, they're, they're, they're terrified of the situation and they cry out. And what does Jesus say to them? Jesus uses some of the most amazing Greek words in the Bible that point us back to Exodus where Jesus says to Moses in the fiery, in the fiery bush, he says, I am that I am. He uses the same Greek parallel to those terms to say to these disciples, I am who I am. Jesus tells them his name that, that is so sacred to all of the Jewish people to know that this is God. And you know something? To hear those words and to know that it was God who was walking on the water with them was the only thing that they needed to know. He was comforting to them in their fear. And he comforted them by his word which is the way that he comforts us today. If you're afraid, Jesus Christ will comfort you by his word. He will express to you who he is. It's what he does, and that's how he comforts. Number six, he was compassionate towards Peter's failure. And you can put in there as well, forgiving. When Peter begins to sink in unbelief, Jesus had every right to just let him sink. Peter had failed. Matter of fact, when Jesus pulls him out, Jesus says to him, oh, ye of little faith. I'm, I'm there, right? Are you there? Would you say that I'm, I'm a little faith person? Jesus reaches down to the little faith person and pulls him up out of the water. But Jesus doesn't pull Peter out of the water until Peter does what? Until he sinks, until he, until he cries out. Jesus is there. He's available. Would it have made any sense for Peter to start swimming? I mean, seriously. That's what I would do. I'm like, I'm going to swim out of this deal. I'll swim back to the boat. No, the situation was such that Peter knew I can't swim back. He already done the stupid thing of getting out of the boat and trying to walk on the water, right? He's like, hey, I did that. I may as well just give myself to Jesus. I mean, that's the answer. He's available. He's there. But he's not going to give you a swimming lesson. He's going to pick you up out of the water miraculously because he's still walking on it. He's compassionate towards Peter's fears or failures. And I would say this to you, Jesus is, pa is compassionate towards your failures as well. He's compassionate. He knows, the Bible says he knows that we are all but, but we are all but dust. Jesus is compassionate about your failures. He cares about you. He cares when you're sinking. He's there to help you. But you gotta put it in his hands. Number seven, in regards to the character, of uh, the personality of Christ, he was complete in his deliverance. The Bible tells us in the book of John in this narrative that when he got into the boat, immediately they were at shore. He uses that same word immediately. That's the fourth time that he uses it. But he says immediately, they, it's, it's, the implication is, is that it's miraculous. He gets in the boat and then they're at shore. Like the other miracles, that are the, you don't have to question. You know, the walking on the water thing kind of makes the immediately at shore acceptable, Right? They are immediately at shore because Jesus Christ finishes what he starts. Jesus Christ completes the deliverance that he gives and offers. The whole night they're rowing and trying to get to the storm. Think about this. They're rowing as hard as they can. They're rowing as fast as they can. They're making no progress at all. Jesus gets into the boat and immediately they're at the shore. I love it. It's like he didn't pick up a row. He didn't tell him, hey, guys, I'm going to give you special strength and we'll row really fast. He's like, Jesus is in the boat. I'm at shore. That's how he works. The storm brings the disciples to desperation. 
And just think about this. The storm brings the disciples to a desperation for life so that they forgot about their plans for making Jesus king and their desires for having a great bread maker. Sometimes we have to be in the storm that's going to cost us our life. A storm that's bigger than bread and a storm that's bigger than any kingdom before we're going to be willing to look and see Jesus. The purpose, the purpose of these seven characteristics, and we could probably have drawn out more, the purpose for all of these things and this storm for the disciples is that they would see Jesus and they would see Jesus only. Not his benefits. Not his benefits, but that they would see Jesus and they would see Jesus only. The last thought this morning is is Jesus' pursuit for the storm. Jesus' goal for putting them into the storm was accomplished in the text temporarily and partially. In other words, these same disciples are going to have to go through additional storms. They're going to have to go through additional challenges. They're going to have to go through additional trials. They're not done yet. Amen? How many of you guys can, how many of you guys can say, me too? They were, they were delivered. It was deliverance temporarily. They learned probably a small piece of the lesson. They learned a little bit. But guess what they had to go through again? And until they pass from this life into the next, they're going to continue to have to go through these difficulties. Because the goal is for you to see Jesus as all satisfying. The goal is for them to see Jesus as all satisfying. You remember at the end of Jesus' life, he has his disciples, they're on the beach there, and he's getting ready to feed them. What does he say to Peter? What does he say to Peter at the end? It's already, we're getting ready to hear, we're getting ready to uh, experience Jesus' ascension into heaven. What does he say to Peter? After three and a half years of working with him, what does he say to him? Peter, do you love me more than anything else? Peter, do you love me? He says it three times to him. Peter, have you gotten it? Peter, have you gotten it? Did you get it? Did you get it when you denied me three times after I told you you would? Did did you get it? Did you get it when I forgave you and used you to preach? Did you get it? Peter, did you get it? My question to us this morning is, is do we get it? Do we get Jesus? Not his benefits, but Jesus is all satisfying that he is all satisfying. The storms that God pushes us into are meant to accomplish four things. In the end of your notes, if you want to write these down, number one, if these things will always lead to you seeing Jesus alone, number one is reverence for God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Sometimes amidst the, the blessings and benefits that are clouding us from seeing Jesus as all satisfying, God sends us into a trial so that we will reverence him again. And one of the things that we've lost in our culture, in our generation, is a real true fear of God, a reverence for God, a recognition of his holiness and his justice that has caused us to see Jesus as Santa Claus. What can he do for us and what can he give us? And Jesus is not about what he can do for us and what he can give us. Jesus is about being for us what we need. It is the storms that remind us of God's holiness. It is the storms that remind us of God's greatness. And it is the storms that push us into a focus on Christ. Not only reverence for God, but number two, recognition of our desperate condition. Storms lead us to realize our desperation and to cry out to the one who can deliver. I said this earlier, but I'll say it again. When you're dying, you're no longer worried about who is king and who can make you bread. True? How many of you think 
the disciples in that boat were worried about who was going to be king. How many of you think they were worried about who make, can make bread? The disciples were worried about one thing and one thing alone, and that was that they were going to die. And sometimes it's the darkest and deepest storms that make us wake up to seeing what and who is important. Number four, number three, a reliance on Jesus Christ. Storms move us to trust Jesus. And listen to me, storms move us to get out of the boat. Peter experienced something in this narrative that none of the other disciples experienced. Peter experienced the miracle like none of the rest experienced. Why? Because Peter was willing to get out of the boat. And man, we could, we could preach forever on what it means to get out of the boat and what the boat represents and all that stuff, but we won't. But you know what the boat represents. The boat represents us. Our abilities, our strengths, our comforts, our protection, our provision. What the boat says is, is that, hey, this is all that we could put. This is, this is what we have built to protect us. And the Lord says in that boat, it's not able. But Jesus and Peter get out, or Peter gets out. He sees the Lord like no other man has ever seen the Lord. Because he put it all in God's hands. The disciples get to see it in a slighter taste, but they not like Peter. The last thing is, is relief for, every, relief for everyone. Storms lead to deliverance. Storms lead to deliverance. They lead to us being able to see God, see Jesus bring deliverance. They let us see him do the work. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says this, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. The Apostle Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You might be facing some storms in your life today, and I would assume that you are. Maybe you've even asked the question, why do good things or why do bad things happen to good people? Know this, Jesus has a purpose for your storm. He is showing you his character every day through the storms and difficulties and leading you to fear God, to acknowledge your desperation, to see Jesus alone, and to experience his deliverance. Jesus may not deliver you from the storms in this life. He may and will, he will deliver you from the storms for sure in eternity, but he may not deliver you from the storms in this life. But the key to the storm is finding satisfaction in Christ, not for the deliverance sake, but for Jesus' sake. Jesus will meet you in your storm so that you may see him singularly because of the storm. Jesus met David as he ran out toward Goliath. Jesus met Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Jesus met Daniel in the lion's den. Jesus met Gideon on the battlefield. And Jesus will meet you in your storm. And he's available not to help you, but he's available to, to deliver you. There's a difference. He wants you to let it go. And let him deal with it. And in the end, it will always turn out for his glory and for our good. Jesus will meet you in the greatest of your difficulties so that you will learn to see him and be satisfied in him. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word today. We thank you for the truths that are here. Help us not to miss that you are the bread that was feeding these people. That the, the, the lesson that is there is not that you're able to feed us all with physical bread, but that you are, you are the bread of life. And that we can find fulfillment and satisfaction and completeness and, and confidence and comfort, not because life is easy, but because you are satisfying. Help us, Lord God, to embrace you and you alone. And no matter what, the, no matter what life throws at us, no matter what plans you have to cause us to suffer, that it will only clear our vision 
It will cause our ears to be open wider, our eyes to be open wider so that we can see you and we can savor you. We love you and thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.